0: Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at KanduCFC.com. So, yeah, like we were talking about, Christmas Eve here on Friday, was awesome. I loved it. We celebrated the, the kingdom of heaven and how the kingdom came to earth as a baby. Jesus was born here. The Creator was born amongst His creation. Although Jesus ascended to heaven after His life here on earth, His kingdom is still alive in us through the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit that He gave us as just a marvelous gift. So the kingdom came, the kingdom is here, but a day is coming when Jesus himself will return to this earth as king, to reign once and for all over his kingdom in a way that this world has not yet experienced. And it's going to be glorious. In Matthew 24, uh, Jesus and his disciples begin a conversation uh, because the disciples ask uh, about these events. When is this going to happen? They, They say in Matthew 24, verse 3, tell us, when will all this happen? Your return that they're talking about. What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? So Jesus actually takes quite a while to answer this question. Uh, The rest of chapter 24, he answers it, and he begins to answer even more uh, once we get to chapter 25. And I want to focus on one parable that Jesus shares as part of his answer explaining the return of the king and the establishment once and for all uh, of his kingdom. So I'm going, to read this, uh, I'm going to read this Matthew 25 parable from the screen. That way I can make sure that we're, always, we're able to follow along here. So Matthew 25, 1 to 13, this is a parable that Jesus shares. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come up, come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return." Interesting parable, lots of details, but uh, if I don't want to get bogged down in the details because I believe there's an overarching principle or lesson that is meant to be focused on when we hear this parable. To be totally honest, as I was thinking about this parable this week, studying it in my office, there was a moment where I struggled to fight back the tears because of how heavy I feel that this parable of Jesus is. I love Jesus, and I love all of you very, very much, but to be, to be blunt, this parable rocked me in a way that it hasn't before. This is a parable I know. I'm familiar with it. I've heard it many times, but there was something that happened this week, a brevity that God introduced to me in this parable that I just hadn't experienced before. Jesus' is teaching about the condition of the earth at the time of his return. And there's some mixed results, isn't there? It's, it's not all good news. It's not all warm, fuzzy feelings. There's some, there's some tough stuff that's going to happen when he comes back. To me, this parable, it, just, it doesn't mess around. But this parable's message has been around for 2,000 years, telling us the same thing it did when Jesus originally spoke it, This parable tells us, hey, everyone, Jesus is coming back. Don't be unprepared. Be ready for his return. That's the message that it's been saying for 2,000 years to anyone who would care to read it, anyone who would care to study it and seek understanding. But at the same time, this parable is telling us, hey, everyone, this is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Some will be prepared and some will not. Even though it's a warning, it's also a prophecy in some ways. So yeah, this parable is clearly all about preparedness. The bridesmaids of this wedding celebration, they depict us, okay? Even though the bridesmaids are two distinct groups, the foolish and the wise, or the prepared and the unprepared, did you notice how similar they really were? They're similar in many ways. All of them, all 10 of these bridesmaids looked forward to the wedding feast, right? It wasn't that one group looked forward to it and the other didn't. They all did. They all expected the bridegroom to come soon, but no one knew exactly the time that he'd be coming. They all took lamps with them. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. A pretty interesting detail. They all were awoken by the, the sound of someone shouting and saying, Hey, the bridegroom is here. Those are all the similarities. I find that remarkable. And there's just one difference between these two groups. Five of them brought extra oil for their lamps and five didn't. In other words, five were truly prepared and five perhaps thought that they were prepared. Because after all, they, t- they took all the other measures that the five wise bridesmaids did. They just missed out on one detail. They thought, oh, I think we're okay. I think we're good to go. But they weren't truly prepared once we see the end result. But the final result is, yeah, five of them entered the feast and five didn't. Entering this marriage feast symbolizes us entering eternity to be with Jesus forever and ever. I wondered about these five foolish bridesmaids for a long time this week I don't want to play symbolism where it doesn't belong because like I said before parables I think are supposed to represent an overarching general story they're not an allegory where every single detail represents another reality in real life okay so don't read into all these details too much don't get bogged down with them rather uh, think about it in general terms with me here As I was praying and asking the Holy Spirit to show me his heart on this parable, I just kept getting the sense that these five foolish bridesmaids were people who had relied on doing the right things rather than seeking a relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus. It seems that the turning point in this parable comes in verse 12. Okay, so the bridegroom or the bridesmaids had found a a 24-hour oil merchant somewhere. Maybe it was the first Walmart in Israel. And now they were hurrying back to the wedding feast after they were initially unprepared. Then they went and got what they needed. And now they were hustling back to try to make it in to this wedding feast. They got back to the wedding, but it seems that the celebration had already started. They say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us so when we hear the word lord we think oh they're calling out to jesus no this is a parable okay so they're not calling to jesus they're calling to the lord or the man or the master of the house it's like they're saying sir it's just a term of respect sir sir let us in but he calls back in verse 12 believe me i don't know you so the master of the house where the marriage celebration is taking place is the one with the final authority on who gets let into the wedding and who doesn't. Basically, in his response, the master is saying, well, we don't have a relationship. Why would I let you into my house? Remember, this parable is depicting what it's going to be like. What Jesus says is going to happen when he comes again. Some people are going to say, Jesus, let me into heaven. I belong there. But Jesus, who has the keys to the kingdom, is going to say to some people, I don't know you. So if being known by Jesus is what matters most in this parable, that's the deciding factor on whether someone is in the marriage feast or not, how can we be known by God? We know him. We, we're sitting here talking about him, right? So we, we, we get it that we know who God is. We know facts about him. We intellectually understand that he is God and we are not. We can understand some of these concepts, but how do we make sure that God knows us in a familiar relationship setting? God knows us because he created us, but that doesn't mean that we've chosen to enter into relationship with him, does it? So how do we make sure that God knows us? First Corinthians 8.3 has the answer, I believe. But whoever loves God is known by God. What a simple verse, hey? Like it's not complicated. It doesn't say whoever's been baptized and believes and goes through all these rites of passage and, and they go to church X number of days in a month and all these kind of things, they're known by God. No. No, no, no. That's all the the exterior stuff. It starts on the interior, the inside of us, in our hearts. Whoever loves God, that's who God knows. That's who God has relationship with. So this parable illustrates a fundamental kingdom truth. And it's so important for us to talk about as we bring our In the Kingdom series to a conclusion today. God knows us if we love him. That's it. Looking back over this parable, there's a few details I think we need to make sure that we catch. Preparedness, being prepared for Christ's return, cannot be transferred from one person to another. We see that because the five foolish bridesmaids, they ask for oil from the five wise bridesmaids. And the five say, we can't give it to you. There's not going to be enough for all of us. You should have brought your own. You should have been prepared, right? In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 to 18, Paul is writing about what it's actually going to be like when Jesus returns to earth. This is phenomenal stuff. I love looking at the end times. I love looking about what it's going to be when Christ returns to this earth and what we should be looking for, what we should be watching for, what we should be expecting, right? And Paul actually gives us some amazing details of what it's going to be like. So listen to this with me. First uh, thessalonians four sixteen to eighteen for the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. So time out so first of all, we know that the, the return of Christ will have some audible cues, right? We can see here that he 's going to come with a commanding shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet sound. So three things. Three alarm bells are going to go off to say, hey, guys, wake up. Here he comes. The king is coming, right? Phenomenal stuff. So we know that there's going to be this cue. And then here's what's going to happen when Christ comes back. First, it says, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Now, I'm going to ask a question that might sound silly. But I want you to answer honestly. If someone were to, or all, not someone, if all the Christians who have died before Christ's return are going to rise up from their graves. Do you think that we may possibly notice that? It it sounds silly, but sometimes we think, oh, no, no, no. That's going to be some weird spiritual thing that's going to happen in another realm. I don't think I'm going to see that. It looks like we're going to see it. I think we're going to see the people who have... uh, pre-deceased us and, and gone, to, gone to the next life, they're going to actually come back from the grave and we're going to notice it. So we're going to see these, we're going to hear these audible cues and then we're going to see our first visual cue, right? People coming back to life. It continues on though, it, it, even more. Then, together with them, them is the people who have risen from the dead, we who are still alive and remain on earth, will be caught up into the clouds, and meet the Lord in the air. So, once again, if you start seeing people just kind of floating up into the air, I mean, caught up in the air, flying into the air, whatever you want to say, I'd say that's another fairly obvious sign that something is going on. Would you agree with me? Okay, good. Then... We will be with the Lord forever, so encourage each other with these words. This is not something to fear, this is something to be encouraged by. I just wanted to include that part because I think sometimes we get freaked out. We get weirded out about the things that we have limited understanding on, but Jesus says, or, or Paul says, we're supposed to be encouraged about these events, that we can somehow fathom them a little bit. So this parable illustrates a fundamental... Oh, sorry. I missed my spot here. We're down here. Next page. So based on what we've read, we've read here, I think Jesus' return is going to be very obvious. This isn't something that's going to happen in another dimension. This is going to be something that happens right before our very eyes. We literally are going to meet Jesus in the sky, the sky that we could walk out onto the sidewalk outside of our church, and look up and see. Now, if you think, well, Jeff, I don't know if you're understanding this quite correctly, the air could mean a lot of things. You don't know what it means. Well, Actually, I do. Not because I'm smart, but because I know where to look to sound smart. Okay? So the word the air is one word in Greek. It actually means "ayer," which is amazing because most Greek words don't sound anything like their English counterpart, but here it does. Air in English is ayer in Greek, and it means the lower air we breathe. Pretty interesting. So where is the air that we breathe? It's right outside in this earth's atmosphere. It's not way up in space where there is no atmosphere. It's here. It's where we can look up and see planes flying and birds flying. It's, It's where we stand on the sidewalk. That's the air that we breathe. In that air, we are going to meet the Lord. So this isn't some cosmic dimension, friends. This is right here. Jesus is coming back here, and he's catching us up to meet with him. Everyone's going to be able to see this. I have no doubt in my mind. When this happens, I wonder... Just like the bridesmaids are, are asking for oil from the five wise ones. Are there going to be people who are going to be seeing us or seeing, you know, people risen from their graves? are going to say, oh, my goodness, what's going on? Oh, my goodness. I think I thought I heard something. Is Jesus coming back? Is this what's going on? I know that I'm not moving. What's going on here? Are they going to see us being caught up in the air and say, hey, take me with you. I, I'm a good person. I belong in heaven. Take me with you. I need to be with you. Are they going to be jumping up and, and grabbing at our shoes? I don't know. Like, I just wonder about these things because this is what it's going to be like when Christ returns. That's what Jesus says. And if this is what, if this 1st Thessalonians passage is telling us what it's going to be like when he returns, what are people going to do who thought they were prepared but then are realizing in that moment? Oh, man. I'm missing something here. Are they going to be grasping at us? Are they going to say, share with me what you have? And in that moment, is it going to be bittersweet? Is it going to be completely sweet? Or what, are we going to even recognize them? Are our eyes going to be so fixed on Jesus that we won't even notice? Are we going to turn to them and say, I can't share with you what I have. That's my relationship with Jesus. You have to have your own. Oh. So just like these wise wise bridesmaids couldn't share oil, I don't think we're going to be able to share anything with anyone on that day. I think at that point, it may be too late. And that's why we each have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It is a personal responsibility for every single person to enter heaven. Being prepared means being ready for something before it happens, right? We prepare for harvest season. And Bruce, you're getting all your equipment ready. You're getting everything ready to make sure that when harvest comes, you're not caught unprepared, right? We prepare for winter. I mean, I got up my snowblower months ago, and we haven't needed it at all, but I'm prepared. I have it in my garage. It's not in my back shed where it would be buried under an inch of snow now. (laughs) That means doing things today. Being prepared means doing things today, right now what we need to do in order to enter God's kingdom at any moment. Not thinking, well, this is a long ways away. We got time. I'll worry about this when I'm 30. I'll worry about this when I'm 40. I'll worry about this when my kids graduate high school. I got so much time. That's probably what the five foolish bridesmaids said. This is why Jesus says once again at the end of this parable in verse 13, so you too must keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour of my return. You know, it seems to me being prepared to get into Jesus' kingdom is all about having our own personal relationship with Jesus. Not depending on someone else's connection to him, but loving him and knowing him ourselves. For me, I'm not getting into heaven because my wife loves Jesus. None of us are getting into heaven because we are associated with a church where there's probably somebody else in there. We just kind of hedge our bets by surrounding ourselves with a big group of people. There's got to be someone here who loves Jesus. I'm sure because they do, we're all going to be okay. That's not how it works, right? The only way we are welcomed into Jesus' eternal kingdom is because we know him and we love him ourselves. You know what's crazy I think that the five foolish bridesmaids thought that they had everything they needed to get into that wedding feast. I think those five bridesmaids represent people who sincerely believe that they're saved. Remember all the similarities we identified between the foolish and the wise bridesmaids, right? Why wouldn't they think that they were getting into heaven when they were so similar to the people who actually were? They did basically all the same things that the wise bridesmaids were doing, right? And this shows us the foolishness of comparing ourselves to others. Christians should never say, well, I'm like that person in most ways, and I think that they're really good, so God must think that I'm good too. That's not a good idea. Don't think that way. Or don't think, well, I'm better than them so I'm sure that God thinks I'm a good person too. And that I, I'll get into heaven. Or don't, don't think to yourself, well, at least I'm not like that person. As long as I don't do what they're doing, surely God will accept me and I'll get into heaven. Who we are in comparison to others doesn't matter at all. At all. What matters is if we know Jesus and he says he knows us because we love him. I find that this comparison mentality, though, where we kind of look to each other and kind of jockey for position and say, well, I'm kind of in the good half of Christian Fellowship Church, let's be honest, right? And we look to ourselves, we compare to the next person. Well, at least I show up to church twice a month and there I never see that person when I'm there. You know, we, we start to make these comparisons. When we do that, we are treading on a, a dangerous path. I find, though, that this mentality creeps into all churches, So I have one piece of advice for us that might sound a little bit strange this morning. Don't come to church to fit in with everybody else. Yeah? Is that okay that we say that? Don't come here to be like anyone else that you see. Come here to seek Jesus and to cultivate your relationship with him and to learn to love him more. Does that make sense, friends? Okay, okay. repeat after me I think this is one thing that sometimes we forget because we go to a church so long or someone in the community will ask us well hey whose church is that that you go to and we might say oh well this family's been there the longest that doesn't matter or this is our pastor that's Pastor Jeff's church oh do not say that this is not my church you know whose church this is this church is God's church repeat after me this church is God's church or say it with me that's fine too that's great We are the body of Christ, not the body of Jeff Peters. We are Christ's temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to seek relationship with Jesus alone. It's not about fitting in with everybody else here. That doesn't, ha- that doesn't happen. Or sorry. Um, I have a typo here, so I messed myself up. Okay. The bridesmaids, I think their, their greatest flaw was that they, they sought to compare themselves to the five wise ones, and they just did all the outside things that those bridesmaids were doing, but they didn't realize the inside of the wise bridesmaids. They didn't realize the relationship piece that was so critical. So we can't look for other people um, and just follow their lead when we're at church. However, even though we're not supposed to focus on each other, Bear with me for a moment. As we're learning to be disciples who faithfully and confidently look to Jesus alone, to look to grow in love for Jesus, I do believe that God is going to put people into our lives that could be a great asset for us. When we see someone at church and we begin to realize, whoa, I'm... I think that person has a different kind of relationship with Jesus. There's something special going on there. I think that they really love him in a way that, man, I just don't know if I've ever experienced that. When that happens, don't stand back and just start doing the things that they're doing. Maybe you see someone, you say, well, I, I really think they love Jesus. And, you know, I see them raising their hands sometimes when they worship. So I'm, I'm just going to do that, too, because obviously I'm supposed to do that if, if people who love Jesus do that, Right. Or if, they, if you see them uh, as we pray, it's like they're, they're really intent and they're bowing their head and they're nodding along when Pastor Jeff prays. Don't just do that because they're doing it, right? Or when, when you see them taking notes and they're writing things down and it's like, wow, they're, they're taking notes. I guess I should write this down too. I have no idea what any of this means. But if they're doing it, I'm going to do it because that means that I must be doing something right. Actually, it doesn't matter because those are all exterior, outside, outward actions and we're, we're more working on the heart in this moment, okay? Mimicking someone's outward actions isn't the goal. A heart of love leading to outward change is the goal. Change happens not from doing a bunch of things on the outside. It comes from us learning to love Jesus on the inside. What would be really wise would be to identify someone that you think, hmm, I, I really think there's something special going on in their life. I just see them with such joy when they worship. I see, them, I see them talking with people and praying for people after the service. I, I see them out in the community and I heard them talking about Jesus at the grocery store. I want to know what that's like. So instead of just standing back and raising your hands when they raise their hands or nodding when they nod, go up to them and ask them this question. Say, I've been watching you. Not to be creepy, but I've been watching you and I see that I, I really think you love Jesus. And I want to have a relationship with Jesus like you do. I want to have the joy that I see in you. What is it in your life that has taken place that gives you that kind of joy? That's a very wise question to ask. I think that kind of question would have served the foolish bridesmaids well if they would have turned to these wise ones and said, okay, guys, you know, I know that we're doing a lot of things similar, but is there anything else we need to know? Because I don't want to assume that just because we're doing the same things that we can see you doing, we have it all figured out, right? To me the best questions to ask always start with why. When you see someone that you that you would you say, man, they got a relationship with Jesus, it's clear to me. Why not ask them? Why not ask them about their life? But also, if you if you're here at church and you're not sure why we do something. Isn't that frustrating? Like, I know people who come to church for the first time in their life as adults. And they'll, they'll, ask, they'll ask me if they came with me when I was, you know, not a, not a pastor here. They'll say, so why do you guys sing all those songs at the beginning? Like, that's a lot of songs. And why is everyone singing so loud? And why are people moving around and swaying and, like, raising their arms and closing their eyes? Like, what's going on with all that stuff, Jeff? Great question. That's a good question to ask. It's not a foolish question at all. And honestly, if you've been going to this church for for one week or for 10 years and you still don't understand why we do that, that's okay. Don't you think it would be a good thing to ask? And I hope that the answer would be something like this. You know, the reason why we sing songs at the beginning of our service is because of this church we love Jesus. We love to sing about how wonderful he is. As followers of Jesus have done for thousands of years. He's so alive in us that we can't help but pour out songs of praise to Him. Isn't that a good reason? If, if you didn't realize that that's why people were singing, do you think that that might change the reason or the heart for why you would sing? I think so. Because now we're understanding the motive behind it, not just the action. You could maybe ask someone if you didn't understand, you know, why are we looking for a children's pastor? I've seen that in the bulletin here. Like, what's the big deal? You know, why do we need a children's pastor? And I hope that the person who, who would answer that would say, it's because Jesus loves children, and so do we. We believe that inspiring the next generation to grow in their relationship with Jesus is probably the most important thing that a church can do. We're here to build disciples. We're here to help people walk in obedience with Christ, and it makes so much sense to start that at a young age. I think that would be a good answer. Or you might ask me, you might even come to me, and I'd be okay with this. In fact, I would invite it. You might say, Jeff, why is it that during your messages you often get emotional? That would be okay. My kids ask me that sometimes, and I want us to all have that kind of childlike wonder. I think that's a good thing. Why do you get emotional when you preach? I would tell you this. It's because it's because I love Jesus so much. And I love this church so much. And I just want everything that the Holy Spirit has laid on my heart during the week to translate into all of our hearts as well. And I know that I'm so dependent on Jesus for that to happen. I can't preach any of us into heaven or into relationship with God. We all need to make that choice. And I'm just so desperate for our church to never be content with who we are but to always strive for absolute intimacy with God. That's why this stuff means so much to me. See, in all these answers, every single one of them is about love. Every single one of them is about how we relate to Jesus. We don't do things at this church because it's our preference. We don't do things at Christian Fellowship Church because it's a tradition. We don't do things at this church because we saw someone else do it in another church and we just thought thought it looked cool and we wanted to copy them. None of those things are good reasons. None of them. Jesus says in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, keep my commands. We love Jesus first and foremost, and that drives every single decision that we make at this church. CFC isn't about keeping up appearances That's just religion, and religion doesn't save anyone. We are here only to seek a loving relationship with Jesus, and everything else comes from us loving him in response to his love for us. I've been a pastor in in one capacity or another for about 10 years now. My favorite part of being a pastor is having a front row seat to watch God do great things in the lives of people. I love to see the Holy Spirit work in people's hearts as he reveals himself to them. And they're like, wow, I, you know, God is real. I, I always believed it, but man, I know it now because I've experienced it myself. I love hearing, hearing people say things like that. I love seeing people respond to, in love to God as they see him um, faithfully journey with them in life. They said, They'll say things to me like, man, I went through this difficult situation. Someone died. Someone was sick. You know, I lost a bunch of money or or something happened to me. I was victimized by something. But, man, normally I would be so angry, but I just feel like God is with me and I have such peace. I love hearing that stuff. That's the Holy Spirit working in their lives, not me. I love seeing a life become transformed and renewed as a person learns to know that Jesus is their friend. And they say, you know, I love to obey Jesus, but, you know, I just feel like God loves me. And I get that. And I I feel like he cares about the small details of my life. He's my friend. He's not just my king. He's my friend. I've heard people say these things. I'm blessed to watch someone's disposition change from a person who just wants to blend in and go with the flow and not make any noise to a person who wants to love Jesus and live for Jesus out loud and they just don't care. Who's watching? The wild thing is, I can teach and pray and counsel and pastor someone, but ultimately, every single person who has those kind of changes taking place in their life, it happens because they have chosen to open their lives up to a deeper relationship with Jesus. It's been their choice to say, Jesus, I know that you love me, but now I'm going to actually make intentional strides to love you. I can't choose that for them. Only they can choose that for themselves. You know, I wonder once again about these five bridesmaids who ran out of oil and weren't prepared for the bridegroom. I wonder if for a long time they just went through the motions and they did what they saw other people doing, but they didn't take time to learn to know and love the bridegroom for themselves. I think this is, we're basically at the end of the message here. The more I think about this kind of stuff, the more I think life is actually a lot more simple than we maybe make it out to be. Some people, we come to church and we worry about you know, fitting in and we make that our greatest priority. We worry about what other people think about us. We worry about fitting in in the church. We worry about the style of worship. We worry about, you know, am I wearing the right kind of clothes for this church or that church? And and we can concern ourselves with all the minutia of what other people think. And that complicates life, doesn't it? Isn't it far more simple to come to a church and to just seek Jesus? He's one person to worry about instead of 30 or 40 or 50. I think about these things in my life. I'll be honest with you. As a pastor, and I'm not saying this so that you are going to say anything in response to me. I'm not asking for anything. But as a pastor, every single Sunday, every Sunday, without fail, I will walk home or drive home and I will think, I wonder what people thought of that message. I wonder what people thought of those songs. And you know what? I love you, but I should not care at all (laughs) about what you think. And you know, if you want to do me a favor, say, Jeff, it doesn't matter what I think. Just tell me that once in a while. Because sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. And I worry about all of us instead of just concerning myself with loving my Savior. So friends, let's... uh, Let's resolve. I'm not into New Year's resolutions or anything, but let's resolve to make sure that 2021 has nothing to do with us concerning ourselves about keeping up appearances or maintaining traditions or getting our way or our preferences or or bowing to someone else's way or their preferences. Let's resolve to loving Jesus because if we know we love him, then he knows us. Let's sing a let's sing a closing song here together.